Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Okay, Greg, come over here. Take a look at this before I mail it out because the next place you're going to see it is in the New Yorker. Okay. Very nice. That's it? Very nice? You're not even laughing. I guess I don't get why the couches are talking to each other. They're not couches. They're frogs. Why do they have pillows on them? Those are the eyes. Come on. It's frogs. This is funny. And the caption is, I think it could have been a rabbit for help. No, a ribbit for help. Now do you get it? Mm, Not really. They're talking about a third frog. And you know how people talk about a cry for help, but frogs don't cry. They they rib it, you know. Where's the the third frog? He's implied. An implied frog? Now, that's kind of funny. One frog says to the other frog, "You know there's a third frog, but he's implied." I don't I don't get it. How about this one? One couch says to the other couch, "She's had work done." I'm going to find out who her upholsterer is. Talking couches are not funny. Everybody knows that. Today on our show, the delicate art of the New Yorker cartoon. And now, in this cartoon, there's a radio host at the mic with his headphones on, and he's saying, I can't think of anything to say. Colin McEnroe. That's not a funny cartoon. What? A radio talk show host who's stymied? I don't see anything funny about that. Uh, All right, so we're going to talk about uh, New Yorker cartoons. Uh, Robert Mankoff is with us. He's the cartoon editor of The New Yorker. His latest book, My Life in Cartoons, I just called My Life in Cartoons. I have it right here. How about Never is Never Good for You, My Life in Cartoons? Uh, Of course, one of his most famous cartoons ever uh, is that. Uh, Let me just tell you what's going to happen the rest of the show also. A little bit later, one of Bob's friends, uh, Jack Ziegler, is going to join us. Uh, and uh, towards the end of the show, we're going to meet some of the people who submit cartoons to, uh, to to Bob Mankoff, but haven't quite cracked in yet. Either maybe they've gotten one in or uh, or none in, and sort of talk about sort of to them about what that's like. Bob will be long gone by that time, though. He's got another uh, appearance he has to do. Uh, I also want to say, if you're sitting there, sitting here towards the end of the show, thinking, "Well, they didn't have any women on. We had Liza Donnelly all booked until like 20 minutes ago, and she had to cancel for a family emergency." But we did want to have a woman on. So, Bob Mankoff, great to talk to you. It's actually your second appearance on this show, uh, but uh, the last time was a few years ago. Uh, I want to begin with, you know, there's a document... Wait, 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 wait a second. I want to talk about those frogs. The frogs, yeah. Now, Are you interested? Well, if, if they were toasters. <laughs> Come, now you're talking. No, that's now funny. Now you're that, talking that is, toasters. That is funny. Two toasters talking. Ja- Jack Ziegler once did a cartoon he'll be on later called uh, The Mormon Tabernacle Toaster, which has just... He, the most enormous toaster you've ever seen <laughs> with endless knots. Jack also did a cartoon call with a tough guy. He's got a tattoo on his on his arm saying, born to eat toast. Toast is funny. We did a whole show uh, about toast and toasters. It was yeah, really we, okay. we, did, we did a one-hour show about toast and toasters, which, pe- <laughs> which people throw in our faces now as the flimsiest show we've ever done. Uh, the, well, this, the, wait, the, wait. You know, this this could be a contender. Well, no, I don't think so. Uh, we've <laughs> okay, already go ahead. we've already had like mo- mo- greater moments of entertainment uh, in right. the first couple of seconds go, here. Go. Well, you yeah. know, I was going to say there's a, a short uh, documentary called Every Tuesday that's about New Yorker cartoonists. So tell us right. what happens every Tuesday. Uh, every Tuesday, the, the rather solemn uh, 
sanctified halls of the New Yorker, the inner sanctum, where the writers come and the fact-checkers f- check and, and the grammarians do their thing, is invaded by cartoonists, a whole other tribe, mm. a tribe of humorists, a tribe of jokers and jesters. And, and the halls ring with some amount of laughter and, of course, some amount of crying also <laughs> if the people don't get their cartoons in. And, and really, that's what life all is about, comedy and, and tragedy. You're not, you're not getting your cartoon in a New Yorker you know, is, uh, is, is not a tragedy, and it's a, but it's a, it's a hard thing. What people do is they come in, and it, on, on Tuesdays, it's called open call, which means as long as you make an appointment with my assistant, Colin Stokes, to see me. Anybody can come up and see me. And, of course, a lot of regulars come in, and they show me their cartoons. Uh, uh, and people like Jack, who's out in Kansas, they send me the cartoons. So Tuesday is a, is a time when I look at maybe about 500 cartoons from our regulars and about another 500 cartoons come in from uh, really everybody else. Um, one of the things uh, that I discovered from that particular documentary is, I mean, obviously you have a lot of cartoonists fighting over a very small amount of magazine real estate. But I was sort of interested to see that a lot of them go out for lunch afterwards, right? Uh, the, the cartoonists are absolutely the sweetest, nicest, best <laughs> bunch of uh, human beings ever. They, I'm, just, I'm saying that really not mock seriously. There's something really sweet about people who in this way, you know, have to be funny for money. And they understand that there's a sort of impossible situation with only about 17 slots uh, in the magazine and for hundreds and hundreds of cartoons uh, uh, submitted. So, uh, you know, I just think that they're genuinely nice and more maybe misery loves company. Um, actually, uh, 34 years ago, I, inc- I accompanied William Hamilton to his Tuesday visit. I was writing a profile uh, of William Hamilton. And yeah. I get the feeling he didn't enjoy this. <laughs> it, it seemed like a bazaar for him. He was spreading out his wares like some kind yeah, of merchant. Yeah, you know? yeah. well, of course, of course, William is an, an extraordinarily dignified fellow. Mm-hmm. And right. so <laughs> so I, I, I think that, you know, maybe not a situation that, that, that he naturally fits into uh, uh, easily. But I... Uh, it's uncomfortable both ways around, and, and that's why we, you know, there was recently a, uh, a 60 Minutes on, on, on the process also. And, and so uh, I think it, it, what eases the process, what eases the strain and the tension is what eases it in everyday life. First of all, we, we kid around. We joke around, and the jokes themselves are funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my job as cartoon editor, besides actually editing it and bringing new people into the magazine, is part mentor, part psychologist, uh, and, uh, and part, uh, part coach and cheerleader. I know how hard it is because, as I relate in my book, how about never is never good for you. Did you hear that, publisher? I said it again. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, that uh, uh, I submitted 2,000 cartoons to the New Yorker before one was published, and I was getting published in many, many other places. So uh, I, I, I have sympathy, but I also understand really what the deal is. And if anything, it's, believe me, it's easier now than it was then. The uh, one thing that William Hamilton said to me on that day that has stuck with me, uh, and I don't think it's true about every cartoon, but I think it does sort of help explain why certain cartoons are funny. He said that there's an I see, I, ho- I wish I could recreate exactly word for yeah. word what he said because it was perfect. But he said there's an essential tension between the flimsiness of the concept and the effort that you have to go into to actually produce the, the artistic, the visual part of the cartoon. <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't think that's true. Okay. I don't think I, I don't think the concepts are flimsy at all. I think a Raj Chas cartoon 
where uh, 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 there's a guy looking at an obituary and it says two years older than you, three years younger than you, your age right on the dot. <laughs> that that compresses so completely our, narcissi- our narcissi- narcissism with our own fate. Why every why in every newspaper article somehow you're very interested in the person's age if it's your age. Totally. So I I don't think now some of them are that for for that matter of fact for that matter I don't think you know. Uh, no Thursdays out. How about never is never good for you? I think that resonated enormously. If one of the things I'd say, and maybe I sound a little defensive in defending the New Yorker cartoons, is that cartoon is going to be on the refrigerator long after all the articles in that magazine never appear anywhere, and that and there are great articles in that issue. So it, true, there's a silliness about it, and and he's absolutely right in that the effortlessness in which. Michael Crawford created a cartoon in which it's a knife with all corkscrews, and it's called uh, the effortlessness in which we, we perceive it and get the joke. Or the knife has all corkscrews, and it's called French Army knife. That's wonderful. That <laughs> pops like what David Remnick called a grenade. He might have worked. He might have done thirty cartoons that were nowhere and nothing to get that. So there's something about that, and maybe from the cartoonist's point of view. Sometimes it's that, yeah, I can't believe all the work, and now it's just this little thing out there. But I'm a little bit of an evangelist for humor. I think it's, it, it, it's, it's not only important as sort of the, the children's table in life. I think without it, life actually loses its, its basic meaning and perspective. So, they, so take that, Bill Hamilton. Well, I think also we might be making a mistake in talking about cartoons as if they were all one thing. A uh, distinction right. you make in the book is between the head cartoonist and the hand cartoonist. The head cartoonist, it really is the concept. The concept is everything. Um, the hand cartoonist. I mean, you think of a guy like George Booth. I'm a huge George Booth fan. You couldn't find a huger George right. Booth fan. But a lot of times the caption will be something like, uh, there's one where it's, it's that classic couple that he has that is always in this very cluttered, rundown right, apartment, right, right. and they're the most unglamorous-looking people in the world. And and the man is saying, "So I ran into Julian today, and, he, and I, I he said, how's it going?'" And I said, "Everything's going fine." That's the <laughs> caption, but it's really funny. It's funny somehow or other because of the juxtaposition between yeah, the but, caption. But of course, he but, yeah. but but he also has wonderful cartoons that after. So there's a writer. He's out on the porch. He's clearly stymied. And, of course, it's George Booth people. Mm-hmm. So George Booth people, what they are is deeply human. There's, there's absolute character in them. Over time, we've come to know them, know, know their dysfunction. So his wife is saying, as the writer looks completely stymied, surrounded by all these pooches, write about dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, so, you can so, give me the so, laugh just describing a George Booth cartoon. No, 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 but, but see, that's what I mean. It's, and, and to your original point, they're not monolithic. There's not one thing. I make that point in the book a lot mm-hmm. about people. And one of the things I try to do, and I hope not too pretentiously, but a little pretentiously, is that I try to have a vocabulary to talk about humor. There's humor that is absolutely within the realm of, of ordinary life. And generally that humor is not that funny, but it really speaks to some some true thing. So in a William Hamilton cartoon where there's a very rich guy leaning over at a you know, swanky uh, uh, dinner saying uh, to a younger man, uh, money is life's report card. We know these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and he's making a point. Uh, 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 another great William Hamilton cartoon is a couple uh, talking to another couple, sort of very nicely saying, oh, yes, uh, we know them. We hate them. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, that is just a great, great cartoon. But it's very different than a Leo Cullum cartoon 
where there's a cow on a doctor's examining table, you know, with a bell around his neck, and the doctor is saying, I think we can help with that ringing. <laughs> yes. So Okay, so that, yeah. so all of those, those things, are too, it, those are really apples and oranges. One of the points I try to make in the book is that you, it's silly to compare, you know, one of those cartoons, but it's not silly to enjoy both. You know, you're the cartoon editor now before you was Lee Lawrence, but above you are people like William Shawn at one point, Robert right. Gottlieb at another point, Tina Brown, David Remnick. How much of right. an impact do they have on what's what's a New Yorker cartoon, what's an acceptable New Yorker cartoon? They have a huge impact. They are uh, everyone, certainly William Shawn. In the end, the editor, the overall editor, picks the final cartoons that go in the magazine, and really that's as it, as it should be. I mean... Uh, that was certainly true of William Shawn, and it always respects their sensibility. With William Shawn, everything was, you know, had to be very, very proper. There couldn't be any cartoons re- really even that mentioned sex. So when Tina took over, you could have cartoons in which, uh, you know, which while while they're not salacious, they understand the reality that sex is part of our lives. I did a cartoon, it's in the book, in which there's a middle-aged couple reading, and the, the guy is saying, you're right, tonight isn't reading night, tonight is sex night. <laughs> Uh, or later I did a cartoon, this is under David Remnick, in, uh, during, as the gay marriage uh, uh, discussion goes on and on, uh, to man saying to the woman in bed, uh, what's your opinion on some sex marriage? So, so, so it changes. And so David now, David Remnick makes the final decision, and uh, Tina did something very useful. She moved the needle maybe a little bit too far. I mean, I say that in the book. Maybe the pendulum was pushed a little bit far in one direction to sometimes be shocked for shock's sake and be outrageous. But what she did was enormously useful also, and because if the New Yorker cartoons didn't move somewhat in that direction, they would have just become sort of a museum piece. Uh, what David does is David is uh, obviously a great writer. Uh, he's an amazing editor, but he also has a good sense of humor. And that sense of humor informs, you know, his picks also. And his picks will be different than mine. And sometimes we'll have discussion and I'll say, I really think you should take this. And he'll say, nah, I don't think so. And sometimes he will and sometimes he won't. I want to uh, talk to you also just as a cartoonist as opposed to the cartoon editor. Yeah. Um, Bob Bankoff, uh, famous for his kind of dot style of cartoon. You, you're the only plentilist uh, cartoonist. Uh, right. The world's worst style to do cartoons in. <laughs> I totally do not recommend that. I told in telling the book how, how it caused all sorts of carpal tunnel syndrome problems and everything. Also, I don't want anyone else to do it or else I won't be the only guy and, you know, there's and actually my originals a, won't be worth it. There's a great Jack okay. Ziegler cartoon in the, in the book of what he imagines your studio is like and it's just sort of this these jars oh, yeah. of dots and stuff like that. Well, right, I wanted, right, I wanted, different size. I wanted yeah, to ask ahead. you sort of, you know, the, the genesis of cartoons. I mean, even writing the little introductory skit that you heard, I was realizing that you can achieve a kind of snow blindness after a while where everything seems like it could conceivably be a, a, a cartoon. Um, but one of the things you it's clear from your book is some of your cartoons really are from your life there there's a you, t- you talk at one point about kind of a complicated marriage transition in your life where suddenly you were drawing a lot of there was a, there's this great cartoon of a couple on a couch that's actually going towards the edge of a waterfall and, and one of them saying to the other you know we really we really need to talk um and you said, right. you said that sort of that was kind of going on in your life right then yeah, and then when I, when I had my daughter Sarah, I'd have a cartoon as a guy in an office, and he's got he's got he's holding the baby, and 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 the boss is saying very nice, but photos will be enough from now on. 
so so absolutely. So there are cartoons absolutely from real life, and then there are just cartoons from insanity. Cartoons that I say I did this. These are sort of a younger person's cartoon. When I first broke into the New York, I did some very strange cartoons. Uh, one of them, the choice has a guy at a table, all strewn with a lot of objects, and he's saying, "You know, all you need is a, a, a bicycle pump, a pair of Gucci loafers, and an ordinary deck of playing cards, and you're ready to begin." Now that's nonsense humor, mm-hmm. but there's still a talent even in nonsense humor. Do you see what I mean? I do. It's still act. It's still act. You know, it still has almost the rhythm of a joke. And when people say, I don't get it, there are some cartoons that you are not intended to get, but you're intended to enjoy. James Thurber is really the guy who starts all that. When you look at the the classic Thurber cartoon where there's two people in bed and behind on the headboard is a seal and the wife is saying, have it your own way. You heard a seal bar. Now, Now, people enjoy that. But tell me what you get. You know, tell me, tell, me, tell me the different frames of reference. That's very different than the Crawford cartoon putting together the French and wine. That's very different than an Alex Gregory cartoon, a straight joke in which there's two women talking to each other and one is saying, I started my vegetarianisms, my vegetarianisms for health reasons, then for moral concerns and now just to annoy people. <laughs> so so um, one of the things I really do try to do in the book is say that there's go-with-the-flow cartoons and I think those cartoons, whether you, it's not like you don't like the other ones, but whether you sort of resonate to craziness, and there's no one who does it better than Jack Ziegler. Well, he's not a right now. We're going to go to him in just a second. A couple of quick things yeah. before we do that. One of them is, I, I have to ask you this question, and you don't have to give me an exact number, but just tell me how many digits this is. 439. In no, I bet you that's, oh, I bet oh, you that's I, you low. Didn't, you, didn't, you didn't ask the question. Yeah, I'm when sorry. you hear the question, you're going to say that's low. The it, number yeah. of people who come up, come up to you at a party and say, I have uh, ideas for cartoons. I just I need somebody to draw them. That they feel as though oh, that they are basically cartoonists. They just can't draw these fabulous right, right. ideas. Right, and, 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 and that is just this amazing conceit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, here's my anecdote on that, which is true. I went to the cardiologist once, and I had an arrhythmia. He has me all hooked up. You know, you're in your undies and whatever, and you got to, you know all the things that are on you. He wants to relax me, little chit-chat. What do, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm the cartoon editor in the New Yorker. <laughs> Turns off all the machines, <laughs> says, you know, I have an idea for a cartoon. <laughs> I said, great, I've got an idea for a bypass. So <laughs> it's, I, it, it's almost... If people, if you ask me, how often, how often does one is one of those ideas good? You know what I'm going to ask you. Can you can answer? You can probably guess it. How about never? Yeah, it's never good for you. Never work for you. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. We're going to come back. We've got. We'll have more about Bob Bankoff. We'll have uh, Jack Ziegler and meet uh, some of my other guests as well uh, as we go along here in the cartoon world. All right.
right, we're back. We're talking about uh, cartoons, New Yorker cartoons in particular. Uh, and uh, with us is Bob Mankoff. His uh, latest book is How About Never is Never Good for You, My Life in Cartoons. He's the cartoon editor of The New Yorker. We're going to add to the conversation one of his buddies, uh, Jack Ziegler, who when we first started talking about doing the show, I said, oh, we'll get Jack Ziegler. He lives in Connecticut. Little did I know uh, Jack Ziegler had for some reason or other decided to move to Lawrence, Kansas, uh, which is, I think, where he is right now. Is that where you, in fact, are, Jack Ziegler? That's exactly where I am, right in the middle of this big, huge red state, and uh, the only the only blue dot in the state is Lawrence, Kansas. Now, why did you decide to uh, move there? Um, well, uh, my ex-wife uh, was originally from Kansas, and we used to come back here to visit her family a lot, and uh, we'd always stop in Lawrence on the way out or on the way in and spend a couple of days. It's a great town. It's a college town. It's a lot of fun, especially when uh, NCAA is going on, the the town goes insane. So, And you don't miss uh, going to see Bob Mankoff uh, with your cartoons and going out for lunch with all the cartoonists afterwards? Uh, no, not not really. Jack, I'm here. Oh, Bob, you weren't supposed to be here. Could you leave the room for a minute? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you haven't convinced me yet about Lawrence. Uh, uh, well, you've Jack... got to come visit. I know, I and know. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for tornado season. I want to see what the... With the little bunkers we're entering about. into it. In fact, we have a severe weather uh, alert <laughs> on for this afternoon. Hey, um, one thing I, I want to ask both of you about, and I, I can start with you, Jack Ziegler, but you guys kind of broke in more or less the, the same time, I think, as New Yorker cartoonists and, and as professional cartoonists. How realistic was it to think in terms of making a living as a cartoonist, Jack Ziegler? Uh, not realistic at all, probably, but... Um the New Yorker was the you know the biggest game in town, and if you wanted to be a cartoonist, um, you wanted to send everything to the New Yorker first before you would send it anywhere else. Uh, and uh, that's what I did for for a year. They rejected me constantly, and then finally I got a note saying uh, we'd like we were interested in one of your ideas. Would you come back and and see us? You know, step back into the uh, office. So that was Lee Lorenz. Who was the cartoon editor at the time? Didn't wasn't one of your first things uh, an idea that they were trying to buy from you for Charles Adams to draw something like that? Yeah, they did. The, the first one I sold them was um, they used as an idea for Charles Adams, um, and then I, uh, I sold them a second one for Charles Adams, and then finally they bought one of my own. Um, Charles it, Adams would have been nothing without you. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Yeah, who, we wouldn't even know who he was, probably. It would be, that whole Adams family thing originally, Jack. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, um, you know, the, uh, well, actually, let me just stay with this for a second. So, Bob Mankoff, you know, what about this? You, you now see all these cartoonists. I mean, these are people who, for the most part, this is what they want to do for a living, right? How, how realistic is that? Can, uh, uh, can somebody make a living very, doing it, this? It, it, it's not very, very realistic as a living, although you can you can sort of eke out a living if everything else sort of goes right in terms of advertising. A number of years ago, I started the Cartoon Bank, and that does often supplement, uh, uh, you know, the, the income. But one of the big problems is that it, all, all the other magazines disappeared and people had secondary markets for their cartoons because the New Yorker would reject most of them and, um, you know, and then, you know, they would move them on. So it's, it's, a, it's, a dif- it's difficult. It's, you know, it's very difficult. And a lot of the cartoonists now, uh, guys like Bruce Eric Kaplan and Alex Gregory, they're in sort of the comedy business, Bruce Eric Kaplan, B.E.K., 
was uh, executive producer in Girls Now, wrote for Seinfeld. Alex Gregory has some movies. So it's un- it's unfortunate in a way that people now have to do something else. Uh, Zach Cannon, one of our new cartoonists, writes for Saturday Night Live. So the New Yorker still pays by far the best of anyone else, but with only 17 slots in the magazine, uh, n- nobody can pay enough. What do you pay? What happens if I sell a cartoon to the New Yorker? What are, well, what if you sell a cartoon, have you ever seen, the, you know, in cartoons there are bags of money with dollar signs? <laughs> yep. What we do is we, that's, what, that's how you get it. Yeah. And really the cartoonists, some of them are so naive. It's not, Jack's not one of them that they accept those big bags of, like, cartoon money. I, well, I find that the bag hey, is usually full of M&Ms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're happy. You know, uh, uh, Colin, I've, uh, uh, people always ask me that question, mm. and I say, you know, I have no problem with that. What do you make? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Somehow that ends the conversation. Um, but, but we actually, if you read uh, Bob's book, you will at least know what he got for his. You'll know. Cartoon. You'll know. Rest. You'll yeah. know. Vast, uh, vast sums. And, you, and you'll you'll know that there's some kind of formula now that he refuses to say. But you know, uh, w- one thing that I also read about you, Jack Ziegler, is that you know we talk about uh, David Remnick or Tina Brown or Robert Gottlieb or uh, or William Shaw, and we talk about cartoon editors like Bob and Lee. But there are, there's other people who are or there have been other people. Wasn't there some guy named Carmine Zeppi or something who just Car- Carmine uh, Peppi Peppi who. who who hated who hated your work and wouldn't put it in the magazine? Well, well he was he was uh, he was the guy who was in charge of the layout of the magazine. And and when I first came along, uh, usually when when the New Yorker buys a cartoon from someone, at least back in the old days, the, the cartoon would run fairly quickly, like within two or three weeks. So I sold this cartoon, I think, in November of 1973. And you know the weeks would go by. I'm always looking for the cartoon, and finally I I was in Lee Lorenz's office one day, and I said, you know, you guys have been sitting on this cartoon for six or seven or eight weeks, and it's never appeared. And uh, Lee, Lee was totally unaware that it hadn't appeared uh, because, he, you know, he was looking at a million cartoons a, a week. So he said, let me look into it. So he, he, he con- confronts Carmine Pepe, and he says, uh, you know, um, where is Jack Ziegler's cartoon? And uh, Carmine said, well, I, I keep moving it down to the bottom of the pile because I'm afraid if we start running cartoons by this guy, he's going to totally destroy the magazine. <laughs> so Which I, you I didn't did. quite understand that. Well, Which I don't know did. what he was talking about, but uh, he, didn't, he just didn't agree with my type of stuff. So uh, eventually Mr. Sean spoke to Carmine. And he said, listen, we're going to be buying stuff from him. You, you might as well start, you know, start running it. Otherwise, you're going to run out of office space here. Um, and, so since and shortly after that, Carmine was found dead as a suicide. So there's a, it's a rather sad end to that. And the magazine was destroyed anecdote. also. Um, yeah, yeah. You, and you, so, you, Jack Siegel, you've had about, what, maybe 14? According to the Bob Mankoff's book, I think you've had 1,400 New Yorker cartoons. That well, sound, sound about right? According to Bob's book, that's that's. That's true, I guess, but I've, I've never actually counted them because Bob is the guy with the computer. He doesn't actually allow the other cartoonists to have computers, so we, no, we can that, never that, figure that out how would, much that, we're making that, or how much we're selling or anything. Absolutely. <laughs> every, 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 I require them to keep all the records on papyrus. <laughs> <laughs> The, um, in hieroglyphics, but they, they like that. They like it. They get into it, but it, they, they can't know anything. 
I'm assuming also, Jack. I, I want to stop because I just okay. want to say Jack is one of my oldest and best friends. Jack actually preceded me by a number of years at the magazine. I sold my first cartoon in 77. I think Jack sold his in 73. And Jack was one of the guys who he had been there five years, and he's always been just a great guy. Uh, he's, uh, and that's what I said before about the cartoonists really being a nice group. Him and at that point Sam Gross and Bill Woodman and other people were there. They were always very, very welcoming to someone coming in new, they 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 didn't show any evidence of resentment, and they didn't resent people. They they were just great, and Jack still is great. Um, I want to just play a, qu- a quick clip here. This is uh, something actually that Bob Mankoff cartoonifies uh, in his book. How about never is never good for you? We hadn't said the title in about ten minutes. Uh, How about never is never good for you? My life in cartoons. This is a piece that was done in Seinfeld, where we see Elaine uh, coming in to talk to a fictitious cartoon editor of the New Yorker. So, uh, Jake Peterman wants to hire some of our cartoonists to uh, illustrate your catalog. Well, we're hoping that if perhaps the catalog is a little funnier, people won't be so quick to return the clothes. <laughs> uh, for example, I, you know, I really do... Well, I love this one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a rather clever jab at inter-office politics, don't you think? Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> Why is it that the, that the animals enjoy reading the email? Well, Ms. Benes, uh, cartoons are like gossamer, and uh, one doesn't dissect gossamer. <laughs> well, you don't have to dissect it. If you could just tell me why this is supposed to be funny. Oh, it's merely a commentary on contemporary mores. <laughs> but what is the comment? It's a slice of life. No, it isn't. A pun? I don't think so. Wolfstein? That's not a word. You have no idea what this means, do you? No. No. Then why did you print it? I like the kitty. You know what? You people should be ashamed of yourselves. You know, you doodle a couple of bears at a cocktail party talking about the stock market. You think you're doing comedy. Actually, that's not bad. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. You know... I have others. <laughs> so, uh, Bob Bankoff, this is something you deal with in the book. Um, did it send shockwaves through the cartoon world that the Seinfeld well, I wouldn't was... think it sent too many shockwaves. Bruce Eric Kaplan, the cartoonist, wrote it, for mm. God's sakes. <laughs> 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 so the New Yorker cartoonist wrote it. He actually was sort of making fun in his own way of the people who don't get it, uh, creating sort of this <coughs> fake cartoon. I mean, it's sort of interesting that... And, and absolutely very telling. At the end of it, when when he says the idea is sort of good, she says, well, you know, I have others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in, in that, Elaine then makes up this cartoon of the pig at the complaint department saying, I wish I were taller, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that becomes part of it. Uh, and that's actually not funny. We ran because it's, it's you know, it's not a joke. When we when we ran the capturing contest, the winner for that was with the pig at the complaint department. Stop sending me spam. Hmm. <laughs> now that is a joke. Although, can I say 
I hate the caption contest. I love New Yorker cartoons. I'm a huge fan of both of you guys. Uh, I grew up just on this stuff. I mean, I, I go way, way back into the annals of the New Yorker. I hate the cat because I what I I want to see the finished work. I want to see Jack Ziegler's drawing and Jack Ziegler's punchline. You know, I want to see Bob Mankoff's whole concept. I don't want to see a drawing and then what, some. What, here's here's what you fail to realize. Most the difference between amateurs and professionals mm. is amateurs think most of what they do is good. Mm. Professionals think most of what they do is crap. <laughs> Out of anybody's batch of ten cartoons, most of them are not. Most of them, a lot of them, don't work. Mm. Most of the most of the ones that we that we, that we turn at the caption contest are not. Uh, 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 in other words, they're not the best caption mm. in every single caption contest. Every single one, whatever the cartoonist put, also is one of the entries. Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, the other thing is, and I, the caption contest is a game. The fact is, they're not great cartoons. It's a game. It's like a game of charades. I sort of resent people. No, they're not great cartoons. They don't get reprinted. The idea of this is, let's say you were in this game, and all of a sudden, you see a Supreme Court, and you see they're playing ping pong in front of it, and your turn came up to to come you know to come up with it what would you come up with and then look at the three captions and say you know what in as a game it's it you know it's not bad so please stop hating the caption contest well I, no i will continue to hate it actually but uh, but jack ziegler okay. there is a difference anyway between that and your whole integrated concept which is a drawing and a caption yeah right um yeah it's it's, it's a little bit upsetting when they choose one of my cartoons for the caption contest <laughs> but uh, <laughs> But it's less of my own caption on the drawing. But, but you know, I'm, I'm, I, I play along. It is kind of fun, and people do love it. So who am I to complain? Absolutely. Yeah, let, let Colin complain for you. I will be the one complaining. <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, to, uh, we're going to let Bob Mankoff go because he's got to take off. He's actually yeah. going to be at the Westport Library today, tonight, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Uh, the book, of course, is How About Never. Is never good for you, my life in cartoons. It's been a thrill to talk to you and a thrill to talk to Jack Ziegler as well. You guys are both fabulous cartoonists. Well, Jack, you, that's it? You're dumping Jack, too? Uh, we've got a whole bunch of other guests here. I, I think. All yeah. right. Hey, do do me a favor yeah. for the other guests, even though they don't know me and they right. sort of resent me because I haven't accepted their cartoons. Have them plug my book too. Do you want to? Do you want to see him? When I'm sitting here right in the studio, my, <laughs> I know, I know. I have him plug it in. You know, <laughs> plug running. the book. I'll hear it. Then I'll see your cartoons. I'm I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm just saying. Okay. Hey, it's been great being with you. Okay. Take care. See you, boss. All bye right. Bye bye. All right. That's so Jack long. Ziegler, Bob Man- Mankoff. When we come back, you'll meet Michael Cody, Rob McGrath, and Julian Rowe. They're all cartoonists. This is one from Amazon.com, and this is the kind that Chinese food comes in. What's that? Oh, I thought I was supposed to draw cartons. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Anna Novak and George Greg Anthony Andrew Lischke. The part of Bill Curry was played by Charles Adams. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Tolarski is our executive producer, and for show pages, articles, and cartoons of the Faith Middleton Show staff as bears at a cocktail party talking about the stock market, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose visits the Grand Budapest Hotel. And now...
back to Colin. All right, Jack Ziegler is going to stay with us for a bit uh, and talk to some of our other guests here in studio. Michael Katie, who teaches cartooning and drawing in after-school programs uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, you'll also meet uh, Rob McGrath, a freelance cartoonist. Julian Rowe, who has been accepted by The New Yorker but uh, considers himself to be regularly rejected as well. And he has some of those uh, up on his website. How about you, Michael Katie? Have you, have you been submitting to The New Yorker? I have submitted in the past. I haven't recently, but I have been rejected. Yeah. So I feel very comfortable being here, <laughs> although I am a little starstruck with some of my favorites being on the air. Yeah. And and so um, as you sort of listen to them talk, does, does it in any way kind of inform your sensibilities as a cartoonist, as somebody who, who teaches it and, and does it and maybe hopes to get to the to the all-star level? Well, absolutely. I become even more depressed as I listen to them. And <laughs> that I was wanna... our goal, actually. <laughs> See how sad we can make you. But I do try to pass on some information to uh, students that I work with. Um, and some of the stuff is how not to plan on being a cartoonist as far as making a living is concerned. Um, what, what actually inspired you? What, what got you... The New Yorker was one of the I, – I can't remember not looking at cartoons in The New Yorker, and I must admit to this day I've never read an article in that magazine. <laughs> um, Jack, Jack Ziegler, what do you say to aspiring cartoonists or cartoonists who haven't cracked the code yet, haven't figured out how to sell to The New Yorker? Well, you, you, you can't be discouraged by rejection because everyone is rejected constantly at the magazine. I mean, I send in, you know, 8 to 12 cartoons a week, and – most, if not all, are rejected, you know, week after week. So uh, you, you become totally immune to rejection. You learn to love rejection. <laughs> yeah, actually, I have a 30-drawer file cabinet beside me here that's full of rejects. Well, we, we mentioned the 1,400 number, the number that you've had accepted. According to Mankoff, uh, you've had 18,000 uh, total that you've done. So. Well, I've actually done 23 and some change thousand. So, But who's counting? But who's counting? I'm I'm counting three hundred <laughs> when twenty three thousand four hundred and I don't know what. <laughs> so so Michael Kitty, how often in your life do you draw a cartoon? Do you draw one every day? Do you draw? Cartoon? I usually draw two or three a week. Um, you know, I've I've been published locally. Never had anything in the New Yorker. That's why I'm here. Mm. Um, but I have had some some stuff in some different magazines, and I've done some work for local people and that sort of thing. Um, so the old adage about if you can, then you do, and if you can't, then you teach. You teach. Uh, I'm going to also add to the conversation Julian Rowe. Uh, he's, uh, as I say, he's, uh, Julian Rowe, how many cartoons have you had in The New Yorker? Uh, they bought two, but published one. Yeah, so there's one of them sitting there. And, and Jack Ziegler, by the way, you know, you were talking before about uh, the man who, the layout guy who wasn't using your cartoons. But it's actually not unusual for the New Yorker to sit on a cartoon for years. I mean, if we still had Mankoff here, he'd tell us the record. But I think it's like 12 or 13 years. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I still have cartoons on the bank at the New Yorker that are, you know, 30 years old at this point. <laughs> so, I mean, you really never know when anything is going to run. Uh, they do it more... They they print them more quickly nowadays because they buy less, so they have they have to you know keep going into the bank to get these things out. But um, I guess the one that's thirty years old is probably kind of a bad cartoon <laughs> in the first place. Maybe. So Julian Rowe, give us give us a sample. One of the two cartoons that you sold to the New Yorker. I, I, Mankoff seems to be able to describe a cartoon and have it be funny, but I realize that's not something everybody can do. Yeah, well, uh, the, it was actually the first cartoon that I ever submitted to the magazine. I thought it was a political cartoon that they wouldn't take. There was a bunch of rich people around the table, one looking at the other one, and he's saying, my goodness, Jeffrey, these poor people are delicious. <laughs> and they, they bought it. I was really surprised by it. But then they came back to me a couple weeks later and told me that they weren't going to run it. All right. So what's the one yeah. that they did run? 
The one that did run is a flower with a bee flying away from it, and the flower is saying, call me. Huh. And that, yeah. oh. You just made Jack Sigler. That uh, that's actually, a good one. I was short that week. I'm trying to bring in like nine to ten a week, but I'm submitting there. And I was short, and I actually drew that one on the subway coming up to the uh, to office and just gave them the original drawing, and that's the one that they went with. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah does, you, I, I was going to ask. Um, I'll, I'll sort of ask all of you about this, about sort of what medium you work in. Like Jack Ziegler, you're famous. I think there's some kind of uniball pen or something that you you use, right? Oh yeah, it's. Uh, I have it right here. What the hell is this thing? Um, oh, here it is. It's a. Let's see. It's a uniball Vision. And it's uh, the the good thing about it is that it's uh, waterproof. <laughs> uh, for years and years, when I started cartooning, all the ballpoint pens were not waterproof. Apparently, they couldn't figure out the formula to get waterproof ink into ballpoint pens. But these are great because you can draw fast. When I first started uh, cartooning, I was using a Rapidograph, mm. which is this uh, German art pen. And you would think with the name Rapido... It would be fast, but it was the slowest thing in the world because it would constantly skip if you tried to do a fast line with it. Mm. So uh, these these uh, uniballs are fabulous. Um, and so, Michael Kitty, what do you draw with? I actually started out using that same pen because our Chrome used that pen, but I've switched to um, Sharpies. I love Sharpies. And, and how about you, Julian? Uh, I go to the art store and I find the most obscure pen that works, uh, and it makes beautiful drawings. And then I can never find it again. <laughs> changing, changing mediums. Just the idea of it. the idea that you, that you drew an accepted cartoon on the subway that suggests. Uh, yeah, I, I can't find that pen anymore. Yeah. I don't know where it went. You have to find the pen, the subway car. You have to recreate the entire situation uh, yeah. in order to get delays for fifteen minutes. Yeah. Um, so, and we have one more cartoonist. I got to juggle him onto the uh, on the line here in just a second. But you know, Michael Katie, you, you mentioned R. Crumb. Now, R. Crumb, I doubt R. Crumb ever was published in the New Yorker. I mean, the, we, we're talking about New Yorker cartoons. The world of cartooning is vast, even even as it shrinks now. And Jack can't sell to the Saturday Evening Post necessarily anymore, or something like that. Uh, it's it's still a pretty vast world, and there's a lot of different kind of styles of cartooning out there. And the ones that I try to emulate were always uh, someone like R. Crumb, or you mentioned Booth before. I, the ones that, to me, um, had a little bit of realism, but they had this style that I, I really enjoyed. Mad Magazine was a huge um, influence on me also with the artists that were in there. Actually, Mad Magazine was a huge influence on me, too. I, I talk about this all the time, that it really was the, the moment as a child that you realized you'd been lied to all your life, you know, that advertisements weren't true and things like that. Jack Ziegler, were you a Mad Magazine reader? I was a mad comic book reader ah. before the magazine when Harvey Kurtzman was the editor of it. And that was, that was for me, that was the golden age of mad. And then right. it became a magazine, and Harvey did the first uh, two or three issues, and then he got fired. Uh, and, then, and then I stopped buying Mad Magazine. But the, those, the old comic books that had those incredible comic book parodies, like their Batman Yeah, right, exactly. Like that. Um, and they were funny. And by the way, Crum has has done stuff for the New Yorker. He's been he did in the a cover. Yeah, at least one cover, plus a couple of spreads and things. Um, we want to add add one more voice to this conversation. That's Rob McGrath, another freelance cartoonist. Rob McGrath, how many uh, submissions have you made to the New Yorker? Oh, I made I've made several in the past. I haven't made one in a long time though, because I you know, I, I again <laughs> also just kind of got discouraged. Um, I had um, family connections. Yeah, I've got an aunt who had several things published. I've got an 
family friend who had several New Yorker covers done, Gretchen mm. Dow Simpson. Wow. Um, and I thought that would, uh, you know, would help. <laughs> I, I was at a <laughs> a nice cocktail party and met Lila Renz, and I was only 18 at the time, didn't realize who I was actually talking to. Well, but you raise an interesting point. And Jack Ziegler, this would probably be an area where networking really doesn't help you all that much, right? This is sort of like stand-up comedy. Either the audience laughs or it doesn't. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't know anybody at The New Yorker when I first started. You know, I, most most of the cartoonists who are in the magazine just come in off the street, basically. You start submitting. It doesn't help to know anybody because if you're no, not particularly good, yeah. you can know everybody in the world and it's not going to help you there. Uh, I, I'm sort of wondering also for the guys who uh, who are here who, who have submitted but not. I mean, Rob McGrath, as you look at the New Yorker every week, I assume you look at it every week. Do oh, I, yeah, I, I read it all the time, and I always thought I was, you know, I had a an insight on um, to you know what the, the kind of jokes were, and I teamed up with a writer for a while, um, thinking that that would help a bit. And every caption she came up with ended in something with you know long suffering wife or something. So it, <laughs> <laughs> That never worked out either. So, um, so yeah, I'm just you know, it's it's definitely a tough nut to crack. Well, and, and Jack Ziegler, I mean, I think one thing that one hears about The New Yorker, not just about cartoonists, but about everything. In fact, Roy Blunt Jr., who's as funny a writer as has ever inhabited the earth, uh, told me years ago that it, he kept submitting things and being told that they were funny but not right for The New Yorker. And then he finally decided he didn't care anymore what was right for The New Yorker. But The New Yorker has a specific thing that it's looking for. There's some kind of, you know, almost in undefinable quality that the New Yorker is looking for. You could write up, you could do a hilarious cartoon that could be published almost anywhere else, but not there, right? Well, they're they're looking for something that's unique. Uh, you know, they're looking for somebody who can do something that's a, a bit different from everybody else. So, um, I mean, that's what uh, William Sean always said, you know, this is what we're we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I d- I do drawings. I'm n- I never think of I never have the New Yorker in mind when I'm actually doing cartoons. I'm I'm actually just trying to please myself actually because uh, you know I like I like funny cartoons. I don't like um, topical cartoons or ironic cartoons or you know whatever. I I just like whatever amuses me and. Uh, you know, probably ninety percent of the time, it doesn't amuse anybody else. But as long as I'm amused, that's that's all I care about. Seinfeld yeah. um, clip you ran earlier, I think, is you know that was spot on because it really is. It's almost like if you come up with the most ex- obscure thing that you can think of that no one else gets, it's that it almost seems to be a better chance of selling to the New Yorker. <laughs> I don't think so. I I I, I look at my stuff as uh, they're very simple cartoons. They're very easy to get. I mean, if I get him, everybody should be able to get him, right? Yeah. Actually, yeah. one okay. of your one of my favorite Jack Ziegler cartoons. It's from ages ago. I just thought of it, but I know it's one of your cartoons. You probably don't remember it because you've drawn so many cartoons. Is of a stand-up comedian who's who's he's doing observational comedy, and it's stuff like you know, you go to the bathroom to wash your hands, and there's a piece of spinach stuck to the soap. 
huh? Am I hitting home? Am I hitting? Is, does that sound familiar yeah, to people? I, I, I think I did that. Yeah, you know, you did do that. <laughs> I'm and not that, sure. The actually. audience is all asleep uh, and stuff like that. Hey, you know, um, Rob, uh, excuse me, um, uh, Michael Katie, while we have you here, so you're teaching this stuff to, to young people. Do young people still read The New Yorker? Does this whole conversation mean anything not, to a uh, 17, 18-year-old person? Well, I'm teaching it to younger kids, actually. Yeah. We're like fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, and none of them are even aware of The New Yorker at this point. Yeah. But I always point out that this is kind of like the holy grail, so that they'll go out and look, because a lot of them have a quality of work that's already beginning to be outstanding. So, um, you know, like I'm hearing here, if you want to get into that sort of thing, you need to you need to persist. Um, Julian Rowe, are you going to submit a cartoon this week? Uh, yes, I am. I'm actually started working with a writer now too, so yeah, I'm pretty excited to start submitting these cartoons. And so, yeah, so you're you're coming. Out. See, I can't figure that this out. I, I mean, for, for me, single cartoon, single panel cartoons are so much the work of one person in my own mind. I obviously have a prejudice towards this, but you actually think you can collaborate with another person on it? Oh no, no. I mean, that's the one thing that Bob actually always told me. It's like your drawing is very good, but your jokes suck. <laughs> and this was a cartoonist that I met at the magazine who he told her that, you know, her drawings were not really right for the magazine, in nicer words, and uh, that her writing was really good. So we sort of teamed up, and it makes a pretty interesting product at the end of it. I, I would imagine. How did it, How does it feel to have get that kind of a blunt criticism from Bob Mankoff? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's part of the rejection, you know, process. It's, it's fun, you know. <laughs> I, can, I can take it. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's been great to talk to you. Um, Jack Ziegler, are you submitting cartoons this week to The New Yorker? I submit every week, yeah, yeah. sure. And, and so just very quickly, we have almost no time left, but you're, is it a five-day-a-week job for you? Are you just, you know, are you working, drawing, mailing, well, refining? Well, I, I do ideas uh, five days a week, and I draw two days. So it is basically a five-day thing. Uh, ideas in the morning, drawing in the afternoon. Um, so my deadline is Monday, so I take weekends off. Mm. I'm, I'm doing ideas Monday to Friday. I draw on Friday and Monday and then send them off on Monday night. If you had your whole life to live over again, would you pick the same profession? This yeah, I would, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I was very lucky to, you know, have this work out. Of uh, course, I was pretty much at the end of my rope, you know, robbing gas stations is no picnic. <laughs> No, but it's probably easier to do in Kansas, where there's lots of less. <laughs> well, yeah, probably it is. spaces. You you could take it up again here towards the towards the end of your career, uh, blended in with your retirement. I guess cartoonists don't ever retire, right? You just keep doing no, this. No, you for, don't. You're you because what's to retire from? You know, you're sitting around drawing funny pictures. So, <laughs> all right. Well, listen, uh, I can't wait to, to see the next Jack Ziegler. I'm thrilled to talk to you uh, and Michael Katie. Can't wait to see you. Will make the New Yorker. Uh, do you. you you have to take today as an inspiration. Uh, and just k- keep submitting stuff. Julian Rowe, can't wait to see the new team-up that you're doing. Rob McGrath, uh, I know I'm going to see you in the pages of The New Yorker or somewhere equally prestigious in the near future. Thanks to everybody who uh, contributed to today's show, and we will be back tomorrow with The Nose. Go see the Grand Budapest Hotel tonight so you'll be all ready for our conversation tomorrow. I'm Kion Wolf. All right, in this one, there's this guy and a lady in a car driving, and he says, if Colin McEnroe had said it, I bet you'd think it was interesting. No? I'm going to change it to Ira Glass.